electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Yesterday, I authorized the release of one million barrels per day for the next six months from our strategic petroleum reserve. Acknowledge this by far is the largest release of our national reserves in our history. It is a wartime bridge is the way I look at it to increase our oil supply as we work with our oil, U.S. oil producers to ramp up their production to get us through this period. I've coordinated this release with partners and allies around the world. This morning, over 30 countries from across the world convened in an extraordinary meeting and agreed to the release of tens of millions of additional barrels of oil onto the market. Hundreds of hours of meetings with key allies, keeping them together, is paying off. Nations are coming together to deny Putin the ability to weaponize his energy resources against American families, not only American families, but families in Europe and around the world. I've also made it a priority to get America's fiscal house in order. Under my predecessor, the federal budget deficit went up every single year, every year. As I committed when I was running this and I got here, we're going to turn that around. In fact, last year in 2021, we cut the federal deficit by more than $350 billion. And this year, in 2022, we're on track to cut the deficit by more than $1.3 trillion. $1.3 trillion. That would be the largest one-year reduction in a deficit in U.S. history. And it's particularly important now as we work to reduce pressures on inflation. That's what happens when you reduce the deficit. So here are the facts. It was the previous administration whose reckless policies and mismanagement led to the record budget deficits. In my administration, that's getting the deficit under control. In fact, I just released my budget this week, and it shows going forward we can cut the deficit by another $1 trillion over the next decade while still making prudent investments in economic growth and climate and other equitable economic decisions. But to do that, we have to be willing to do something previous administrations and Republicans today refuse to do. We need to make sure corporations and the super wealthy begin to pay their fair share. Here's one example. Right now, billionaires, and there's not a whole lot of them in the country, maybe I won't give a number because I don't know for sure, they, uh, they average less than 1%. But my point is billionaires pay an average rate of only 8% on their total income. A family led by a firefighter and a teacher can pay double that income tax rate, double what, it, what a billionaire pays, double the 8%. So my budget has a billionaire minimum tax, a 20% minimum tax that applies only to the top one one hundredth of one per, one hundredth of one percent of American households. Billionaire minimum tax is fair. And here's the deal. It raises three hundred and sixty billion dollars that can be used to lower costs for families and cut the deficit. 
It would add, it would, and, and I would add, nobody making less than four, you're tired of hearing me say it, but no one making less than $400,000 a year will pay a single penny more in federal taxes. As I've said in the past, I'm a capitalist. I have no problem with people making as much money as they are capable of making. But I'm asking you one simple question. Just pay your fair share. Pay your fair share, that's all. That's it. Just your fair share. And no one can argue that 20% for a billionaire is unfair. Here's what this adds up to. We're going to continue to create jobs, bring down the cost for families, and rein in deficits left by my predecessor. All important steps in our to continue our historic progress to build a better America. I said from the outset, we're the only country in the world that comes out of crises stronger than we went into them. That's what we're doing here. I want to thank you all for showing up today, and we'll have plenty of time to answer questions about other items other than the, the jobs report uh, next week. Thank you. Appreciate it. Sir, inflation outpacing wages, Mr. President. That is the president. No Q&A today. Uh, delivering remarks on the jobs number from this morning, talking about inflation, the decision to release oil from the SPR, and obviously the, uh, the minimum tax for the ultra-wealthy in this country, asking them to uh, pay their fair share. Uh, we're going to watch that as the market itself on this Jobs Friday, first day of Q2, first day of the month of April, is in a pretty tight range. Dow's only down a couple of points, and the S&P hanging on to 45.35. We're going to start with the markets and sort of put some Q1 uh, perspective in play. Mike Santoli is with us to help break down some of the key drivers and where that leaves us, Mike, for the historically seasonally strong month of April. Yeah, Carl, I mean, obviously, point to point, uh, first quarter was modestly negative, but uh, really dramatic turn. And March really lived up to its uh, historical reputation as being a month of inflection points. 10% gain in the S&P off the lows from early March, 17% run from that same date in the NASDAQ 100. So it shows you we had this spring-loaded uh, kind of recovery, which I think we're just now digesting. That's the, the lesson to me in the first uh, day of this month. There's a little bit of a cushion underneath the market. You could pull back a few more percent and still have it look like some kind of a bottom. But the interesting debate around the big growth stocks, the NASDAQ 100 type stocks, because as strong as that comeback was, they're still underperforming. And it's very selective, both the overall market and within the growth sector, the, the mega cap growth. It's very selective. About half of the gains in March for the NASDAQ 100 came just from Apple, Tesla, and NVIDIA. And if you had a common thread, it's retail sponsorship of those stocks. It's kind of an excitement of long-term story as opposed to you know, valuation sensitivity. And that's what's going on you know, in the broader market, too. So I, I do think that it makes sense to expect a little more chop. You have this defensive leadership in the overall uh, S&P 500. People are scratching their heads about that, the weakness in banks, even as you have yields doing what they're doing. And I think, to me, it's because... It's a compressed economic cycle. We're somewhere in the latter stages, perhaps, of it. And you have a lot of, of rapidly moving policy expectations changing uh, all at once. So to me, that's, uh, that leaves us not in a poor place for the second quarter, but one that's not that comfortable that you have the smooth glide path uh, ahead. Mike, uh, morning. It's John. Uh, it, you could be kind of deceived if you just look at the, the price in the S&P at the beginning of January and yesterday, right? Uh, because you could have made or lost a lot of money, right, if you bought at the lows, right, or sold uh, yeah. at, at the wrong point. How typical or unusual was this as a Q1 and a start to the year with the volumes 
with, with the big moves? I mean, going straight down in the S&P 500, almost 15% in January into late February is relatively unique. You tend not to get that. What did really conform to, to the historical pattern, though, was that you didn't get a third down month. So that part of it is not that unusual. Now, in terms of the magnitude of decline, really nothing out of the ordinary there. Uh, you do typically, even within a bull market, get those kind of 10 to 15% uh, percent drops. A lot of it does feel as if it's it, you know, the way the market typically girds itself for a Fed tightening cycle and a profit deceleration cycle. All that stuff, it, it's generally uh, you know, adhering to what we would expect. Uh, I do think, though, it's, it's been accelerated and perhaps exacerbated by the fact that the stock market doubled in less than two years off that March 2020 low. And so we're, we're, we're still in digestion mode from a lot of those moves. And that's why it perhaps feels a little bit more jarring, especially because last year you never got more than a 5% pullback. Well, Mike, when you look at some of the shakiest or the most volatile mar parts of the market, I'm looking at Chinese tech for the quarter. That K-Web was down more than 6%. But on a day like today, you're seeing these names surge. Um, what kind of indications does that give us, not just Chinese tech, but ARK and some of the other more volatile spaces? Yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously they were so depressed. I mean, depending on what metric you want to look at, ARK or, you know, the cloud stocks or the Chinese tech stocks, down some of them 70% from their highs. So you're talking about a completely different equation in terms of the starting point to where they could double and still be in a downtrend. And I think that's the thing to keep in mind that you're in, for, not for the overall market, but for those segments of the market, you're operating by bear market rules which is that rallies are very violent. You're going to have some hot money that's going to find an opportunity there. And it doesn't necessarily mean the overall trend is changing. Uh, now, that could be you know, open for question as we move along. I do know some people looking at some of the hardest hit, uh, first in, uh, kind of first out into the bear market software stocks that have been basing recently. And it looks like they can recover the massive valuation adjustment. So I think it's too early to declare that just because they were the first to get hit, they're going to come out of this first. Usually it's not the way it works. Usually the leadership of the next leg higher is not the stuff that was the, you know, in the thinnest air before and fell the farthest. Uh, Mike, good perspective, obviously. Uh, again, expectations getting upended uh, to a large degree as we start a new quarter. Thanks. Uh, good, good to see you, Mike Santoli. Let's turn to some specific names like Disney, uh, the street liking what they see on the heels of this week's Investor Day. But our next guest, uh, Michael Nathanson, does remain bearish. And Jim Cramer noticed this morning. Take a listen. It's time for Nathanson to get a little more bullish. He's been holding back. He's going to be wrong. He should get on the bus. He should get on the Disney bus right now. So is it time to get on the bus? Joining us this morning, Moffat Nathanson, Senior Managing Director, Michael Nathanson, who has been right on his Disney call so far this year. Down 10 percent this year, Michael, uh, as the reopening trade ostensibly uh, gets overlooked. Um, what do you think of Jim's comments? Yeah, Carl, I was laughing to get on the bus. Um, <laughs> so to me, the bus is not on the park story. I mean, the park story, we know, right? The park story is really, really strong. We all went down there this week. We saw it. My question with Disney and more broadly in media is just streaming, right, Carl? That's, that's my question that I've been asking for the past couple of years, which is, is streaming a good business? And, you know, Disney really needs to get a lot accomplished the next few years to hit those targets they put out. So, you know, I'm not going to dispute the reopening trade. The park story is great. But I'm still having a hard time, you know, thinking about is this a good business to be in and will they get to their 
their goals that they've laid out, you know, a year and a half ago. Yeah, uh, I think it was one of the one of the sell side desks this week said that the actual raging debate right now about Disney is about content management strategy, whether they should go broad, which I guess in some ways they appear to be doing or to get hyper focused, uh, higher margin uh, centered uh, uh, more around uh, what's going to be offered on Disney Plus. Do you think that's the debate? And if so, where do you side? Yeah, Carl, that's that's the debate. Our view is when they started Disney Plus. It was a more narrow, targeted service for super fans, and they had a, a, a adjustable market they laid out for that. Then they had a second investor day during the pandemic that they raised margins, raised tar- raised targets, and I think that second day has changed their their focus to make the product broader. And I think making the product broader is is definitely lower margin, probably going to cost them more on uh, on d- discounting and adding more sports. Like to me, that's the challenge. I agree with that. That's that narrative, and I kind of think the further they go away from their initial super fan focus, the more challenging a business that it gets. Right. So, and we won't have any evidence whether or not this was a good decision to go so broad for a couple of years from now. But you know, they have a cricket rights, um, re, you know, resigning in, in in India, which will be expensive. They've got you know soccer rights in Latam. They're going to add more content to Disney Plus, maybe off brand. You know that's just further afield from what they mm. what they started with, and in to us the jury's out. And I think we've been proven right. The market's not sold on that right now. So, Michael, I think it's a fair question: Is streaming a good business? You've asked it on the program before, but unlike Netflix, streaming is just a part of Disney's business that feeds other ones. So, is it part of this flywheel that drives business and parks and merchandise in other areas? Unlike a Netflix, would you put them on the same level then? No, that's a great comment point i think if i was disney i would go to tell that story and i would really like stop and change the narrative which is we're not we don't want to be netflix we don't want to be you know in every home selling non-disney branded content we want to create a flywheel using our our in-home connectivity the one-to-one connections they have with all of us and we want to sell more merchandise more park tickets you know that is a different narrative They've not gone there yet, but I would think if I'm them, I take a timeout, a pause. Their investor day they gave the second one was at the, in the middle of a pandemic. The data points they provided were probably pandemic assisted. And I think if they moved something the way you're talking about, which is this is a holistic attempt to build, you know, asset strength across all our our businesses. That's a different narrative, right? We've not heard them go down that path yet, but that to me makes a lot more sense. Been trying to be like Netflix. Uh, Michael, along those lines, I want to test out an idea on you. Uh, good morning, it's John. So the, the period that we're in now is really we're getting back to bundles, to slow churn and boost share of wallet. But the question is, what do customers really want bundled? I mean, Netflix seems to want to bundle in some casual games to slow churn. Apple wants to bundle video, music, fitness, and storage. Amazon's bundling in delivery with the music and video. Roku is bundling streaming platforms, right? So uh, is that what we're trying to figure out, that you know, whoever is big enough and has access to enough other services that maybe they, even in a down economy, manage to stay profitable and have the lowest churn? Well, John, it's funny. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting question because what we've seen in survey work from consultancies, from everyone, which is consumers are dissatisfied with their streaming 
engage, you know, streaming uh, experience today. If you've done it, I'm sure you have. You've got five different apps. You forget what what you're watching, where it is. You've heard about a show, you can't find it. So to me, the real bundle should be an aggregation of streaming offers at the you know at the connected TV level, right? It shouldn't like all those other bundles are interesting, but as a consumer, what I want is what I had in the linear bundle, one place with ease of use, content discovery, like that old linear bundle, which everyone hates and wants to cut the cord on, actually provided people with pretty good user experiences in terms of discovery of content and, and just knowing where things were because it was all linear. So I would think the challenge opportunity is going to be someone, is it a YouTube or Google, an Apple and Amazon, Roku, will create a bundled streaming service with one you know user experience, one user interface with really good discovery of content. That to me solves a problem and maybe that bundle will be discounted. So when I think about your question, all those other bundles to me are so far afield from what consumers want, which is they want to go to their, their screen and have it all connected be able to like track what they're watching and then find other things across the, all the, the offers that speak to them. And that we're way away from that at this point in time. Hey, Michael, not to make too much of it, but it does seem like we should kind of mention the political turmoil Disney has sort of brought on itself. Um, and it's uh, the way it approached uh, Florida <clears throat> legislation. Tom Cotton today calling them a charter member of the China lobby. Do you think that's going to be material to, to the business? Yeah, Carl, um, it's material to the business. We've had this before. I don't think it's material to the business, but I think what, what people are worrying about is, you know, it, it's a, it was a misstep that maybe didn't need to happen that brings, you know, this type of scrutiny onto themselves. So we, having covered Disney a long time, I'm not thinking that this is a change in my forecast, a change of park, a change of regulatory, but it just, you know, it's kind of a self-wound like Scarlett Johansson was, you know, a year and a half ago. And it's just, you know, it's something that, you know, I think the investors, you just, they don't like to see, right? Just this in the headlines. Because I don't think it's a an earnings impact, but it could possibly just like, just um, leads to a little bit of disappointment that the story has has these kind of headlines to, to deal with at this point. Right, right. Uh, Michael, we'll, um, we'll continue to watch it with your help. Uh, appreciate you playing along with the Kramer bite. It's good to see you. <laughs> Uh, Michael, Meanwhile, choppy market conditions leading to a drop off in IPOs to start the year. Leslie Picker has a look at the factors contributing to that decline and whether or not we will see a rebound in Q2. Leslie, a number of the later stage startups I talked to here in San Francisco, they don't seem to be in any rush. But of course, that could change based on market conditions. Yeah, they're in no rush because there's really nothing to be rushing to. The market is just abysmal for them right now. The IPO market has essentially fallen off a cliff this year as a result. Just $2.4 billion worth of listings have hit U.S. exchanges in 2022. 5%, guys, just 5% of the volume that we saw last year over this same period. That according to DealLogic data. In fact, this has been the worst three-month stretch for IPOs in 24 quarters since the beginning of 2016 when the prospect of rising interest rates ensnared broader markets. Sound familiar? Well, it's not too dissimilar from what's going on now. Higher rates whipsawing the profitless growth type uh, companies that have come to epitomize the IPO market. The Renaissance IPO ETF is more than 20% lower this year. Geopolitical and pandemic uncertainty are also creating headwinds for supply chains and inflation, potentially creeping into margins of some companies that would otherwise be looking to debut. And 
All of that creates opacity for how to value and trade new issues. So companies that can wait to go public, as we were just talking about. Are choosing to do so. Jobani, for example, was set to make its debut earlier this year and has delayed. Reddit was planning on going public in March. Well, that didn't happen. It is now April. Digital bank Chime is reportedly punting its deal to the second half of the year. Instacart and Stripe were considered IPO candidates this year, but they had just had their valuation slashed by Fidelity. So the IPO market. May remain practically at a standstill, and it's unlikely that the buy side is that interested at this point either, guys. Okay, Leslie. We'll see when it gets moving again, Leslie Picker. And still to come, Dell downgraded a prime time to unionize, and the China bulls return. Tech check is just getting started. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until that presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case unexplainable. It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com, designed for work. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com/slash/find-your-rich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa, John Fort, and Julia Borston. Get a market check here this morning. Pretty tight range, but markets still digesting、uh, the jobs number this morning. A little bit below estimates, but still the unemployment rate down to three six, and the、uh, three month average five hundred and sixty two k. Dow's down fourteen. Julia's got some more on an impending ad slowdown and how that could impact stocks in Q two. That's coming up next. And we're going to stay for stocks with now. Q1 was a tough one for the major indices, as you probably know, the worst performance in two years. But we've entered an upswing since mid-March. So how should investors think about risk and tech positioning going into the second quarter? Joining us now, O'Shaughnessy Asset Management Co-Chief Investment Officer Chris Meredith. Chris, it's great to have you with us today.、Uh, so throughout the first quarter, you're approaching this from a quant point of view, and a defensive strategy has proven to be the most active. Is that the case at the moment? Yes,、uh, we have a platform, custom indexing platform called Canvas. What we've seen is dramatic inflows where the strategy has doubled in assets over the first quarter, and this is part of the what we feel is a positioning where allocators are looking more towards the risk profile of their portfolio rather than the return. And what we have is this defensive stability strategy that looks、um, at a combination of factors, both value, momentum, but most prominently a stability factor that looks at historical operating stability through sales and EBITDA. It looks at management stability through share issuance, and it looks at the market stability as well. The strategy is designed to protect during downturns. We've simulated it across all correction markets at ten percent, where it's added value, and we've seen that bear out in the real time. Where since the, the market peak in December, we've seen it where the strategy has added value for people. So we think it's a valuable, you know, potential item to put in people's allocations、yeah. as they think about all the risk in the market. 
And in a strategy like this, tech overall is somewhat underweight, but there is still a role, right? What kind of tech would you be looking for in a defensive strategy? So obviously technology companies, they, they come with some potentially higher beta stocks and also some you know current fundamentals that don't line up because of the growth aspect of it. But there are a number of opportunities within the technology sector. Uh, we think of it more as the uh, the tortoise versus the hare, but we see things in communications equipment. We see it in application software, semiconductors, payment processors, where there's a ton of opportunities. And we've seen that where these companies have the ability to help protect even within your tech sector and potentially offset some of the other growth bets in your portfolio. Chris, what should I make of the fact that you're saying you're seeing an increase in allocation to downside protection? But a few days ago, we were having somebody tell us that uh, we're also seeing an increase in retail investors taking on riskier bets, trying to capture the upside in the markets. Is is that some unusual divergence that, that we're seeing in investor behavior? No, I, th- I think this is overall, it's just, it's, it, it heightens what is the call it the uncertainty around the current market environment, right? So we've got concerns about supply chain, geopolitical risk. We've got heightened valuations, interest rates and, and inflation, all basically putting investors where there's a huge divergence of opinion right now, where some people think there's a, you know, potentially huge upside and opportunity. Other people are, are concerned and they want to protect. Uh, are you a believer in uh, some of the anecdotal arguments we've heard this week about weakening demand and demand at the consumer level and especially say consumer electronics yeah so the, the, the part of our philosophy as quantitative managers is that we you know basically set our strategies we test them over 50 60 year periods so we try to avoid any sort of short term you know I'll call it uh, inputs where you're worried about individual items what we do is robustly check over 60 years and check that you know we're getting things in there like Black Monday, you know, Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, you're getting the the tech crisis, the global financial crisis. All these are things that we try to bake into our strategies and have it where the portfolio is positioning for any one of those circumstances. Chris, thanks so much for being with us. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for having me. As we had to break, check out shares of Poshmark, downgraded at Stiefel, saying they see numerous growth challenges ahead, including a decrease in marketing effectiveness due to Apple's privacy changes. Speaking of which, the challenges facing online advertisers is next. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. 
We are still awaiting the final results from the Amazon unionization vote in Staten Island. They just took a brief break. They have resumed counting. I'm told that there's only about three piles of ballots left, so we could get the results any moment. We will bring them to you as soon as we have it. But the union continues to be in the lead with more than 50 percent of the votes. And, Carl, Amazon shares, they're up about nine-tenths of one percent. But certainly, if this passes, it will be a landmark moment. But it won't be the end of it. We're likely to see Amazon appeal. We're likely to see a lot more steps before this becomes a reality. But it is it could be a big moment. Yeah, watching it closely, uh, Dee. In the meantime, new research showing that overall ad sales are flattening. Uh, Julia Borston has more on the impact for companies like Google and Meta. Hi, Julia. Well, Carl, ad spending is back at pre-pandemic levels, but growth is flattening. And new data on ad spending from Standard Media Index, which gathers data from all the major U.S. ad companies, shows some platforms are better positioned than others. SMI says that after the pandemic period, March of 2020 through September 2021, raised $17 billion in U.S. ad spending. The market bounced back. January and February of this year, spending grew 15% and 20% respectively. But spending in March through May is projected to be flat with a year ago period as brands react to inflation and economic uncertainty. Now, in this flat ad market, traditional linear TV ad spending declined 21% in March, while digital ad spending increased 18%. Digital video is the fastest growing sector, followed by digital audio. Of course, that's driven by podcasts. Now, SMI ranking at the top media providers by market share, Google is now in the number one spot with 16% growth. CNBC's parent company Comcast, which includes NBC Universal, is in the second spot with 21% growth. And meanwhile, Facebook and Twitter both saw 39% growth now last year. SMI reporting that Amazon, Snap, and Roku, along with Facebook and Twitter, are all growing faster than the overall digital ad market. Snap shares are actually up nearly 5% today, and Meta shares are up about 1% after Goldman Sachs writing this morning in a note that they that these two stocks present a compelling opportunity, also noting that Google has continued strong backdrop for search advertising. Goldman also writing that they see that these companies benefiting from easier comparisons to the year ago period when they started to feel the impact of those Apple privacy changes, also saying that these companies are making progress when it comes to improving their ad targeting. Guys? Julia, so does this mean Meta's not as bad off as some people feared? Well, look, Meta uh, may be a better alternative than something like traditional TV advertising. And that's the question. The other question that we're going to hear answered when Meta reports their first quarter earnings is just how much progress have they made when it comes to navigating those Apple operating system changes? Have they figured out good ways to get around it? There are a lot of warnings coming from Meta, a lot of concerns uh, from, from Meta and as well as from analysts watching that stock. But they may have made more progress. And I think the question is, when it comes to comparisons, are you going to pull out your brand advertising from something that's much harder to measure and go into something like Meta, where you know you could reach a lot of people? Maybe the targeting isn't as good as it used to be, but it might be better than traditional radio advertising or traditional TV advertising. Yeah, great points, Julia. Thank you. After the break, why one Wall Street firm says it's time to get back into JD.com, the Chinese internet sector having its best day since mid-March after a pretty terrible quarter. Stay with us. We're back soon. Is it time? 
to get back into Chinese Internet names. Bernstein thinks so, naming JD.com a top pick today, expecting the stock to remain resilient, outgrow its peers. Bernstein also bullish on JD's omnichannel business. Stocks jumping this morning, but still down 14 percent on the year. Uh, that sector, of course, seeing a big rally today because Chinese authorities considering giving U.S. regulators full access to audits of Chinese-listed firms, according to Bloomberg. The framework key to allowing Chinese companies to keep their U.S. listings, D. And we'll see how much of this is related to the damage that's already been done. Maybe has something to do with China's willingness to embrace mm -hmm. the West, at least when it comes to capital and trade, given the tensions over Ukraine. It's one of these rare moments where we have good news from the Chinese side and the U.S. side, or they're kind of coordinating. Because remember, there's two very different forces at work in these ADRs, and you never really know which way one of them are going to go. The headlines out of Beijing recently, uh, John, have also been more positive that they're going to sort of wind down the crackdown on Chinese tech companies. Can you believe it? We always come back to this question. We don't really know what drives policymakers in Beijing. Um, so that's always something that investors have to consider. And we see, continue to see big moves, lots of volatility. I just don't know if you can believe it. Yeah. I mean, I'm worried that this is sort of like that ex who cheats on you and then wants to get back together when it comes to Chinese stocks. It's like, is, <laughs> is the narrative ever quite the same? I mean, not a lot of trust. Yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how investors feel about it. Meanwhile, we continue to watch that Amazon vote updates next. Plus, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in a moment. Many... Many Wall Street banks have been cautious of crypto over the years, and as a result, some employees leaving start to start their own ventures. Kate Rooney is outside the New York Stock Exchange and has a look at crypto firms' efforts to lure top talent. Hi, Kate. Hey, Dee. Good to see you. Some of the uh, big bulge bracket names on Wall Street are building out their crypto teams. They argue they've got more scale and more impact. But people I've been talking to who have left the banks to join startups lately say they're looking for a faster pace, they're looking for a little bit of a different culture and potentially more upside. JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs are some of the banks with a dedicated crypto team at this point. And data from LinkedIn shows that the pace of crypto hiring at financial firms quadrupled from 2015 and jumped 40 percent in the first half of 2021. I spoke to the CEO of Onyx as well. That's JP Morgan's blockchain group. Omar Farouk tells me they have to move slower. They worry about J.P. Morgan's brand and bank regulators. But he says the impact is something that a fintech could only dream of. There aren't many places where you can roll out a new platform to do, say, trading, repo trading for securities versus cash. And that can, platform can go from literally nothing to moving or transacting a billion dollars of trade a day uh, in a few months. So I think that sort of scale can only be possible when you operate at a company like J.P. Morgan Chase. Farouk's team is now more than 200 people they've hired from startups, but he also says they're hiring from some of the thousands of J.P. Morgan employees around the world. It's not just first-year analysts, guys. He says it's managing directors and some of the more senior leadership applying to work at Onyx. Other folks, though, I've talked to have found the pace of innovating from within a bank to be frustrating. Take Mary Catherine Ladder. She gets an MBA from Harvard. She worked at Goldman, was a managing director of BlackRock, 
and she started working on crypto as a side project at the asset manager. She says she didn't want to miss out on the fast-paced industry. She left to join Uniswap, where she's now chief operating officer. She says it felt like a bigger risk to actually stay and miss this next wave of innovation. Now, though, she says they're looking for a different kind of resume. So many people who frankly had no interest in financial services, who would never really explore or consider working on Wall Street, are excited to work at Uniswap Labs and companies like us. So that's exciting because I constantly am meeting people who are 23 years old, who are as smart about markets as people I worked with on Wall Street for years. And it's, uh, it's a totally new interest for them. And guys, Mary Catherine told me that some of their best hires so far have been self-taught computer scientists and crypto influencers that she met on Twitter. And, and it's not just Wall Street versus the startups here. They're also competing with big tech for some of the top talent. Back to you. That doesn't come as a surprise. Uh, Kate, thank you so much. Great overview there. Uh, Carl, John, we continue to await the final vote count at that Amazon Staten Island warehouse. It is almost done. The union still has the lead as they count those last votes. This uh, indeed could be a big moment. Amazon shares are up about half a percent. John, investors likely going to have to digest what this means for the company going forward. They have spent billions and billions on building up their logistics presence, their warehouses or fulfillment centers over the years. This could be a big inflection point. Well, it definitely is, D. I mean, this is, a, I believe, a 5,000 worker warehouse. Yes, there's worker churn, Carl, but the fact that this isn't a big union moving in to unionize, it's grassroots. Given what we saw at Starbucks, you've got to wonder what happens to, uh, at Walmart and others that have resisted unions for a long time in this environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and of course, right on cue, uh, uh, new reports in this case this morning from Vice News, leaked notes from an internal meeting, they say, of Amazon leadership looking to target some of the union organizers. That's been sort of standard practice when it comes down to the wire, guys. Uh, it's an unfortunate part of uh, the labor negotiation process, I suppose. Uh, but do have a good weekend. Dow's down 45. Let's get to the judge. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.